I'm guessing you want to hear them again. Yeah. Hey. If you're uh, new to New Hope, you're going to find that uh, the music here can vary from weekend to weekend, and could be jazz next week, and could be classical the week after that. It's greatly varied, very eclectic. Thank you guys for doing that. We really appreciate you bringing the word that way in the song this morning. I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles with you, maybe electronically or hard copy, if you go to the book of Luke, and you're going to definitely want to um, follow along. Luke chapter 18. I think maybe if you have some paper to write on, it's going to help you. Maybe you grab the, the notes on your way in this morning. So Luke chapter 18, and we're in the midst of a series called Hard Questions. Now, before I, I speak to the issue of the hard question this morning, let me just kind of put an exclamation point on what we spoke about with the video related to Stephen's ministry this morning. Um, if you are finding yourself in a place where you're trying to plug into New Hope, and maybe you're wondering, is there a place for me to serve? That might be one of the areas you could consider. Uh, Stephen's ministry had a, a huge impact in my life this last year during COVID lockdown. Individuals from Stephen ministry were the ones who were calling me and saying, hey, how you doing? And I, I felt guilty because I felt like I should be calling them. And yet they're calling me saying, we just want to talk with you about how things are going for you and um, discuss, you know, what are the stressors like? And it was really sympathetic. And I appreciate them doing that. So the ways that they might connect with you if you're lonely or going through a struggle, maybe job loss or maybe an illness, is they, they just will come alongside you and, and counsel. And so well-trained individuals. And speaking of that, this September, they're going to be launching a new training program uh, uh, for a class that you can step into. It's fairly long, but it will prepare you to become one of the Stephen Ministry people. Out in the atrium after the service, they have tables set up, and you can engage with them and have conversation. Now, kind of related to Stephen Ministry, because it falls under the care ministry program here at New Hope, is this subject that comes up about how do I respond to individuals in our community who are needy or helpless? And this is the way the question actually came in, and I've heard it multiple times. How should I respond when I encounter a needy or helpless citizen? And by that, you might immediately be thinking of somebody sitting with a cardboard sign on the side of the street saying, we'll work for food. Or maybe somebody just saying, anything will help. We're kind of going to go down that vein this morning as we look at Luke chapter 18, and we have to ask ourselves this question. Why is it when we encounter a helpless or a needy person, perhaps they're on the side of the street, why is it that we flinch when we come face to face with somebody like that? I have a premise, and my reasoning goes along with the premise, that I believe that we kind of see ourselves when we see or when we encounter needy people. Now, first of all, what human nature typically does, and I would confess I'm as guilty as anybody else, when you come alongside somebody who's holding a cardboard sign up, your first reaction is like, get a job, right? Okay, maybe I'm the only one that thinks that way. But the thought is, there's a lot of jobs out there. Why are you not working? And then we go into judgment mode when we do that. Well, if we backtrack a little bit, though, and we begin thinking about what are we actually encountered, I've come to this conclusion. I've come to the conclusion that in those moments when we encounter individuals who are struggling with perhaps the worst stage in their life, what it really is, it's an echo of the effect of this fallen world that we live in. It's a reminder to us, and no one wants to be reminded of that. We would much rather be driving through Mayberry 1964 
We'd much rather be seeing Aunt B and Clara on the sidewalk talking about their apple pie recipe and Barney and Andy walking towards Floyd's barbershop and Opie jumping on his bicycle riding to the pond. But we live in the real world. And in the real world, at the busiest intersections, people are rude and they cut us off in traffic. And just when we're frustrated and when we're moving at what we consider the best pace we can and navigating our way, somebody pops up on a street corner and they're holding a cardboard sign and it says, anything will help. God bless. We'll work for food. I can't feed my children. Have you ever seen a cardboard sign that says, God helps those who help themselves? I haven't. I haven't seen one of those yet, but that's probably one of the most quoted phrases that you'll hear associated with the Bible that actually isn't found in the Bible. People think it is, but it's not found in the Bible. The Bible actually states something that's completely the opposite. Let me show you this on the screen, and it says that God helps the helpless. Isaiah 25.4, you have been a defense for the helpless, a defense for the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. Before we step into this, and I think God's going to kind of prick the heart this morning, I want to ask you to pray with me that we would be open to what God has to say in His Word. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing that your word does speak. It is alive. It is active. And it does probe. And you use it to do surgery on our hearts. And you might need to check us, Father, this morning. I don't even think it's a might. You need to. You need to check us on this and and cause us to ask ourselves, where do we stand on this issue and how should we respond? God, I ask that you would be at work right now through the power of the Holy Spirit to cause your word not only to come alive, but produce a result as we represent your kingdom and we seek to be Christ people in this world. We ask that you would reveal now truth to us. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have um, moved to Luke chapter 18, I'm going to get to that in just a moment. What I'm going to do is present to you two images, one from 61 A.D., and one from 30 A.D. And the one from 61 A.D. is representing a specific period of time in Paul's life. Emperor Nero is in charge. A detachment of Praetorian Guard has been assigned to him as an especially dangerous prisoner. And he's not dangerous because of his military brilliance or because of his great financial wealth, but rather because he's a political threat. He's claiming that there's a king greater than Caesar. And because he's been saying that publicly, he's found himself in a lot of trouble. And although he's a Roman citizen by birth, he's a Jew and a Christian of all things. Paul is well known to the church, both at that time and here in our day and age. He's been arrested two years earlier than this moment in time, and he's defended himself in a lot of court cases, representing himself before governors and rulers. And now he finds himself in Rome. He's a prisoner awaiting an audience with Caesar himself because he's exercised the right as a Roman citizen to be heard by Nero. But while he waits, he has time on his hands. And with time on his hands, he puts pen to paper. And with the assistance of his young friend, Timothy, Timothy begins to write down the things that Paul says. 
Seven years earlier, Paul had launched a church in a very prosperous city by the name of Philippi. And he wants to speak into the life of these individuals who are in Philippi. So he takes time to begin writing the book of Philippians. God moves in his spirit as he puts pen to paper to guide this young church and ultimately untold millions upon millions, those of us right here in this auditorium, those who are watching on virtual church right now, we're included in this group. We receive his counsel through these writings. Watch what he says when he writes this from prison, Philippians 3, 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that, pay very careful attention to this phrase, for that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus." It is a remarkable person who can come to the place where they're humble enough to get an accurate view of their life. Sitting in a Roman prison in chains is one way to have that happen. And no doubt, while Paul is in chains, he often thought back to this moment in time when Jesus laid hold of him, where he put his hand on Paul. He was literally intercepted by God. And he knew what it was to be completely helpless, according to Acts chapter 9. When God intercepted him, Jesus physically knocked him on his tail. And he's on the ground, and he has to pick himself up from the ground. And when he gets up from the ground, he finds that he's blind. He can't see anymore. God does this in order to get his attention. And he becomes completely dependent upon other people around him, and he begins to fumble in the darkness, trying not to bump into walls. Look with me at Acts 9. It says this in verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. If you're confused about why he's called Saul some places and Paul in other places, Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Greek given name, his Roman name, if you will. That's why he's known as Paul throughout the New Testament, mostly written in Greek. So young Saul, the Hebrew, could have never envisioned himself, never imagined himself in this condition because as a young man, he defined his path. He's the one that determined his own way in life. He's doing business and he's leading the charge and clearly he's on his way to the top of the corporate ladder until Jesus laid hold of him. God knew that Paul had to see himself as nothing more than a humble, broken man, curled up in a corner, blind, debased, and wretched beyond comprehension. Not only would his source of livelihood dry up if he continued to remain blind, he would be looked upon by the community as being stricken by God. 
When you read John chapter 9 and Jesus encounters a young man born blind, the people actually say, who sinned, this man or his mother? Because they believe that people who had these physical infirmities, they, they were stricken of God. And that would have been Paul's future. It's a rarity to be able to visualize ourselves as we really are before God. And I know I'm among people who understand this this morning, because if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you consider yourself a Christian. A Christian is a remarkable person because a Christian has arrived at the place where they have an accurate view of their need. When, when we encounter people in great need, I would suggest to you that it's a reminder that we also are people in great need, that we are people who know what it is to be distressed, and we come to God the Savior and say, I'm too much of a sinner. I need Jesus. We're all sinners, and we need Jesus. And seeing that homeless person on the street is an instant reminder of that. Now, that's the 61 AD image. Let me give you a 30 AD image, and this one has to do with Jesus, who encounters a person holding a cardboard sign, if you will. Go with me to Luke chapter 18 and verse 35. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. I'm going to encourage you mentally to enter the world of a blind person in the first century. Whatever you have to do to imagine that moment, picture this. Every single day, Somebody has to guide you towards the marketplace, towards the highway, and set you down at the entrance of the city. You're blind. You can't see. You can't navigate your way around. You're dependent upon someone else. You're helpless in that situation. He's heard about the magnificent beauty of the city that he lives in. He's heard about the beauty of these palm trees that surround Jericho, but he's not been able to see them. People walk by him every day talking about the splendor of Herod's new winter estate and, and that it's got fountains and it's got pools and it rivals Caesar's palace. And I don't mean Caesar's palace in Las Vegas. I mean Caesar's palace literally in Rome. It rivals the majesty of Caesar's own home. And he can, he can smell the fruit trees and the balsam and the fragrance of the palm branches and the rose gardens that Herod put in. But he's never been actually able to see a bee pollinate a flower. He can only hear the flutter of the wing. By this stage in life, his face is very tired and worn and his world is dark and he doesn't have a future because everything is black. Mark identifies him as an individual with the name Bartimaeus. 
In Jesus' time, old Jericho, which was conquered by Joshua, as you read about in the Old Testament, that had been completely abandoned. People are confused when they read the New Testament because God said that Jericho would never be rebuilt again. But there's two Jerichos. There's the old city of Jericho that's completely been abandoned. It's demolished. It's just got foundation walls, but that's it. It was never rebuilt. But only a mile or so away, a new city, also called Jericho, that city is what we're talking about here. This new city is magnificent, and it's gorgeous, and it's been designed and built by King Herod the Great, and it's become a vacation destination. It was built for the affluent of society. Originally, it was cultivated as a plantation. So there's, there's aromatic balsam trees and all of these palm trees and there's fruit orchards as far as the eye can see. And the early rulers of this region, they built a huge Greek palace there, but it was completely leveled by Herod because he wanted a new winter estate. And he poured his resources financially into it with a 25-acre palace, if you can imagine which was designed to mimic Caesar's estate. So Herod constructed a stadium nearby so that he could watch the Olympic sports, and he erected Roman monuments within the city as a tribute to Caesar. In the first century, Jericho is at the height of its splendor. And it's only a one-day journey from there to Jerusalem. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 20, 29. We're told that a large crowd followed Jesus as he encounters this blind man. Well, it's only one week before the crucifixion and the resurrection, but they don't know that. Why are they there? Why is there a large crowd? Well, it's Passover, and we're told according to historians that perhaps as many as two million people swelled into Jerusalem around Passover. So this monster crowd is following Jesus, and they're more than just mildly excited. If you've not ever heard of Passover from the Bible before, just picture this imagery. Think prior to COVID, think Pasadena, California on January 1st during the Rose Bowl. And you're thinking right about Passover. The air is electric. Everybody wants to be there. It's the place to be seen and to be seen. And this crowd is heading for Jerusalem for Passover. Next verse, verse 35, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. So he has his cardboard sign, and it doesn't say, we'll work for food, because he can't. He's blind. His cardboard sign would just say, anything helps. God bless. Whatever you can do. Jericho is a great place to be if you're desperate. It's like sitting on Wall Street in front of the Wall Street Trading Center and waiting for the brokers to get out at 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon because people with wealth will be walking by you. One of the most common eye diseases in the first century was this malady that affected and infected the eyes when children were infants. While they were sleeping, there was a, a particular type of fly that would infect the eyes of children through a bite and would lay eggs. And a lot of children had a white opaqueness to their eyes. I don't think that's the situation with this guy, though. Because he says to Jesus, I want to regain my sight. So obviously, he's had an injury or he's had some disease, but he at one time could see, but he can't see anymore. And his cloak is spread before him, trying to receive alms. And his custom is to beg to those who pass by and ask them for money. Verse 36, now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. 
they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. I really appreciate Dr. Luke's attention to detail in this, because you can imagine the conversation. What's going on? And one of the bystanders says, well, Jesus is right here. He's almost in front of you. The many individuals who lose one of their senses, either hearing or sight or smell, their other senses increase greatly. But you don't need your senses to increase, especially hearing, to realize there is a huge crowd on the road and people uh, in, with people in front of him. It's way beyond normal. The crowd is pushing and they're shoving and they're trying to get near Jesus. And he can tell that's going on. Well, what would you do in his sandals? He's sitting on the roadside and he hears that Jesus is right there. Verse 38, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So apparently, he's heard of Jesus' reputation. He might have even heard about Jesus' reputation with the man who was born blind that you read about in John chapter 9. Obviously, there has to be rumors going around about who Jesus is. And he begins shouting out, Son of David, and that title that he uses is really significant. It's not a confusing title, but it's one that the crowd does not appreciate, especially in the way in which he's saying it. On one level, this loud shouting is interrupting Jesus, and they probably don't want to stop the entourage on its way to Jerusalem because it's party time. Everybody wants to get their Passover and celebrate. But in the context of what he's saying and when he's saying it, it's no wonder they want to silence him. First of all, because during this time, people had no regard for those with disability. I told you earlier, they looked upon them as being sinners punished by God and certainly did not find them worthy of their attention. And occasionally, they would flip a few coins in their direction, sometimes just to make them quiet. But that's about it. But this guy shouts even louder. Look with me at verse 39 again. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more. As you read the story, you find that unlike the crowd, Jesus doesn't tell him to be quiet. Jesus doesn't tell him to stop using this title. He doesn't reject the thought that he's the son of David. Let me amplify that a little bit. Jesus is near the fulfillment of his mission. And it's no longer necessary to keep the secret. Up until this point, when individuals said that he was the Messiah, he would tell them, don't tell anyone else. Don't let it be known publicly. Don't make the secret available in a public fashion. Why? Because it had it become known prematurely, the political implications would quickly complicate his ability to accomplish what his mission was. This is all about timing. So this is the first time, as you read the New Testament, the first time that Jesus is proclaimed Son of David in a very public way so that everyone can hear it. So ask yourself this question, how does a blind guy on the side of the road in a vacation town have any idea that Jesus is able to heal him? Well, like all Jews from childhood, they were taught about the prophets. And being taught about the prophets, he would learn from the prophets that there were specific details to watch for when the Messiah would arrive. 
So look at one of those details from Isaiah chapter 61. Interestingly, the very first passage that Jesus read in a public setting when He first arrived on the scene, Isaiah 61, 1. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness, note that phrase, release from darkness for the prisoners. The word brokenhearted that's being used here in the Hebrew language, you see it in your notes this morning, it's talking about somebody who's got an expectation. And Jesus says to bind up the brokenhearted, somebody who's about to burst, they're so expectant for the Messiah. Jesus says, I've come to bind that one because I am the one. Bind up the brokenhearted. Now hear this, to call someone the son of David is the equivalent of calling them the Messiah. To the Jews, it indicated the one person who is the promised descendant of David and will sit upon the throne and will rule and will reign according to what David wrote forever and forever, forever over the household. So no wonder they're sternly telling him to be quiet, verse 39, sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. If you've been at New Hope for any length of time, you've heard me refer to the Greek word kradzo. That's the word crying out. And when you see the definition in your notes and you see the word on the screen kradzo, it, it actually means to scream like a trapped animal, a trapped wild animal. I don't know if you've ever heard a wild animal in a trap, but you won't ignore it, I promise you. So we've got this guy who's screaming out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And it's written in the Greek imperative, which means in the present imperative, it means it's a continuous action. He's doing it over and over and over and over, and he won't shut up. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And over and over again, and over and over again, and over and over again, and over and over again. Are you getting tired of hearing over and over again? Imagine how tired they were because he's screaming it. And Jesus is the celebrity, and he's moving on past, and he wants his attention. See, this is very loud. It's very insistent. It's not a helpless, feeble cry. So this guy has a cardboard sign, and he has an air horn to go with it, and he slaps it on the window of the car, and he blows the air horn and says, help me. Would that get your attention? I've had similar things like that happen when I've traveled internationally, especially. I don't know about your experiences. My, my very first trip to Mexico, where I was in a border town, and Lori and I were working in Arizona, but I went into Nogales on the Arizona side, and I had been warned not only to wear certain kinds of shoes, and I didn't listen to the warning, and I, well, I wore a pair of shoes that actually needed to have polish put on them. Well, immediately as I crossed the border, there were six or seven kids at my feet and I was dragging them as I'm going down the sidewalk because they're clutched to my ankle. They want to polish my shoes for me. That'll get your attention. What they're doing is they're begging for money. Maybe you've been in a big city before where somebody walks up and spits on your windshield and then says, will you pay me to wash your windshield? Happens on a fairly regular basis. 
It's not much different than running into somebody who's holding a cardboard sign. Some people are completely subdued by their struggles, and it's possible to give up. But not this one. What motivates this guy? Knowledge. He understood that this one who's in front of him can change his circumstances. And it's the loud cry that stops Jesus, this kradzo. But it's not just the scream, it's what he's saying with the scream. The title that he's using, that had to get Jesus' attention. So Jesus responds. Mark includes a fascinating detail. Look with me on the screen at this, Mark 10, 49. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up, he is calling for you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. That's nice. That's, that's an eyewitness detail. Let me help you with that thought. Have you gone to the Secretary of State before to get a license or title transfer? And, and you've got to draw a number. I'm thinking pre-COVID, before you made reservations. You walk in the door and you've got to get a number. And, and you see that they're serving number three on the sign, but you draw the number 53. And you've got a long wait ahead of you. And so you sit and you wait patiently, patiently, patiently. And when they call number 53... Boom, you're up out of your seat because you don't want anybody getting in front of you. That's the kind of thought here with he jumped up. See, he's blind. He's not crippled. He can jump up. And according to what Mark says, he threw this cloak aside. He jumps up out of his seat and he runs as much as you can run as a blind man. Jesus is calling for you. Nice detail, Mark. Thank you for that. Come back down to Luke's version, Luke 18, verse 40. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. I find this so fascinating, church. Watch Jesus' question. What do you want me to do for you? He's God. I find this fascinating and compelling. There's no secret about what's wrong with him. He's a beggar on the street. And God says to him, what do you want me to do for you? You should be reading in between the lines here that God wants you to articulate your need very specifically. Watch this unfold because God has just said, what do you want me to do for you? Here's why I find this fascinating and compelling. Jesus is addressing him as a person. Not someone to be disregarded, not someone to drive on past, but he's seeing him as a person created in the image of God. And he stops and engages him in conversation. And in return, this man is very, very clear about his need. We're going to circle back to Jesus' conversation with him in just a moment. Let's finish out the story. Verse 41, and he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Lord, I, I want to see again. Have you, church, ever been that clear with God? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I know there's a moment in time where you were that clear, where you recognized that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. At some point, you came to Jesus and said, I need you. I have sin, and I need a Savior, and I believe that you're real. At some point, you've been that specific, but somehow, over time, 
we develop the capacity to think that we impress God with a lot of flowery words or with big philosophical thoughts. I find God saying, what do you want? And I find this individual saying, here's what's wrong. Very specific. Are you that articulate with God about your need? God, I'm going into a meeting. And you know the outcome of the meeting is really important. And I I want this to happen in this meeting. Or God, I've got this pain in my rib. and, And I'm feeling it right here specifically, God. Would you help me with this? Articulate to God. Be specific with God. Jesus' response, finish out the story, verse 42, and Jesus said to him, receive your sight, your faith has made you well, but Matthew includes an extra detail. Matthew chapter 20, verse 34, Jesus had compassion and touched him. When you read Mark's version and Matthew's version, you get these extra details, and the Greek word haptomai that is there, touched him, is really important. I want to Harken back to that, but I didn't include the word Jesus touched him in your notes this morning. Jesus had compassion and touched him. And so this word compassion in the Greek language is splagnizomahi. And other than the fact it sounds like an Italian dish, it would be helpful for you to remember it because it represents the fact that God had a gut ache. It means for the bowels to yearn. Splagnizomahi, that's compassion. So Jesus has a gut ache for what this guy has been living with and what he's been going through. He's addressing him as a person. And then Matthew tells us that he touched him. And my mind goes back to Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Look with me again on the screen. Philippians 3.12, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. What did Jesus take hold of you for, church? Well, certainly for eternal life, certainly for the forgiveness of your sin, chosen by God to be His own, but also to advance the kingdom of God here on earth. If that weren't true, you wouldn't still be drawn breath. God would have taken you to eternity. Every person is saved for a purpose. You have a purpose. You're part of a church, a purpose within the church. What is your purpose? It's unique to each person. You're still drawing oxygen. Your lungs fill and exhale. God's allowed you to stay. That's why we draw breath, because we advance the kingdom. Watch how this guy advances the kingdom. Verse 43. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God, and when all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. So Bartimaeus starts the doxology. The crowd picks up on the doxology and it becomes contagious and everybody is infected with the way that he's praising God. And notice this, he's still dirt poor. His circumstances haven't changed a whole lot. His bank account didn't grow. He doesn't have a pair of Ray-Bans and he doesn't have an iPhone 12, but he's praising God because of what God has done in his life. God has touched him. We're looking at an individual who's praising God authentically because Jesus took hold of him. He has a future. And praise, the way we start out every single service here, 
Praise to the Father is the natural outflow of God's working in your life. It's your first pursuit. But did you notice that one person with the right attitude, praising God appropriately, changed the attitude of all of the crowd around him? All of a sudden, they're on his bandwagon. They were telling him to shut up. But now they're saying, yeah, go ahead, let's praise God. Look at what God has done. Which brings us to the hard question. What does a biblical response look like when you encounter someone who's in great need? What about the world that we live in when we go out into the marketplace? I can give you some really practical responses to this because Lori and I served in a ministry for 15 years that worked with people who were in helpless and needy situations, working at Youth Haven. So we have practical experience working in this world. I can speak from the heart about this stuff. Let me give you some guidelines that are really practical when you're faced with someone in great need. Maybe when you come to the next stoplight at a street corner and you're wondering, what do I do? I'll start here. Recognize that that person is made in the image of God. It has dignity and has worth. Maybe another thought that would help you, that that is someone's son or someone's daughter. It may be in an adult form, but that's somebody's little boy and somebody's little girl dealing with the consequences of choices throughout the course of their life. Let's get very practical now. Accept this, that outside of a real relationship with that person, there is very little that you can do effectively long-term. My desire is to fix things. I'm a guy. That's what I do. I try and fix things that are broken. But I have to accept the reality that there's some things that I can't fix. But one thing that I can do is respond to another person with some degree of dignity, with kindness, and with respect. So even though we can't be in a relationship with everyone, we can give that person the dignity of asking their name. Just say, what's your first name? Maybe respond with your first name. And perhaps in the moments that you have, you could say, can I pray for you? I'll pray for you later today. Thanks for sharing your name with me. Maybe if you have a little more time, you could even actually ask where they're from. And you could get specific about praying for them, how they got to where they're at. I wanted you to notice this specifically because of the way that Jesus interacted with Bartimaeus. He spoke directly to Bartimaeus. He engaged him in conversation and asked him specifically about his personal need. That's kind of a, a minimum. So here's a practical way to also respond. A bottle of water or maybe a trail mix bar or a meal is way better than cash. And I say that because we live in North America. And I personally, you may not agree with me on this, and it might sound harsh, but I typically do not give cash out to people in the United States when they're standing on a street corner, primarily because of rampant substance abuse. And it might surprise you to learn that more often than not, addicts panhandle. So many times, individuals that you encounter on the street holding signs are, are feeding a habit. New Hope has a really well-developed compassionate care program. And when you give finances to the church through the general fund, we fund compassionate care. 
And when individuals within the church have needs financially, like paying a power bill, or perhaps they need some help buying groceries or diapers, we're there as a church family to help our church family. But I'm speaking about on the street. On the street, I don't want to play a role in contributing to more misery through substance abuse. So I don't personally give out cash, but you don't want to ignore a real need. So I've offered to buy meals or deliver a meal. How that person responds to it is not my responsibility. My responsibility is how did I respond to God's leading? So if they're really only interested in money, don't let it ruin your day. A guy came to me between services and said that he bought a meal for someone recently, and when he handed the bag of hamburger and fries to the guy, the guy took it and said, I didn't want that, and smashed it on the hood of his car, even though his sign had said, we'll work for food. That kind of response is going to happen, but don't let it ruin your day. Your responsibility is, how did I respond to God's leading? Here's the third one. Traffic lights are really challenging, right? Newsflash. It's not news. Someone who stands at a street corner with only seconds to interact is not in a space where you can develop a relationship and build it. But you can engage in that basic conversation. At times, I find myself in the middle of other conversations on the phone. And so at the intersection, maybe it's the best thing you can do at that moment is wave or smile to somebody. But you also could consider handing a bottle of water out the window. I'll expand on that just a little bit more. Here's a fourth one. Don't give money to people who are using children as props. Very often, they're professionals and they're using children, and especially important if you travel internationally. But it's beginning to happen here in the United States. People doing what they saw happen in other countries, now bringing the same practices here and using their children as fronts or props. My experience, it's not helpful to give money to children who are begging because giving money to children is like paying parents to put the kids back on the street to keep producing more money. It is good, though, to engage in conversation and ask if they're hungry and buy them food or talk to them about if they're in a safe place or if they're in a dangerous situation and help them to find resources. What's the most loving action that I can take in a moment like that? It's true that we're not called to judge, but when you're at a stoplight, You've got to make a judgment call in that moment about whether or not money should be given away in that moment. How is it going to be used? Is it going to be used for crack? Is it going to be used for booze? Or is it actually going to be used for food? What's the most loving response that I can make towards this person in that moment? Perhaps it's only a wave. Perhaps it's a kind word. Perhaps it's literally smiling at them, or maybe handing a burger out the window, or maybe a bottle of water. And if you can afford it, consider offering them a Bible if they will receive it. I want to wrap this up with a bow tie in just a second. I think there's a larger issue at play, though, for each of us. How does it impact our world? And this is where we do a hard analysis of ourselves. Every single encounter of this nature is a reminder, a powerful reminder, that when we encounter those who are struggling with the worst stage in life, as I said at the beginning, this is a reflection of the reality of the consequences of living in a fallen world. 
in terms of eternity, this is how it relates to you, in terms of eternity and salvation, your own personal salvation, but for Jesus Christ our Lord, we are all utterly helpless. Amen? That's what Paul's writing about in Philippians chapter 3. I'm, I'm the broken guy. I'm in the corner. I'm blind. I'm utterly helpless. Like the blind guy in Jericho. But for Jesus Christ, we're all utterly helpless. Romans 5, 6. Why, while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Recognizing there's nothing that we can do to fix the mess, apart from Jesus, we find we are in great need. Thank God that He, and I do mean this literally, next time you have a street encounter, that He is the helper of the helpless. Because Romans 5.8 says we need to be reminded that while we were sinners, Jesus died for us. But for the grace of God, there go I. So next time you encounter someone who's in great need, thank God every single time that when you came to Him in need, He did not turn away from you. But rather, He said, I'm everything that you need. I'm all that you need and more. Very practical way for you to apply this. At every exit door, when you go out the door this morning, you're going to find bottles of water. And they have stickers on it. We have enough bottles of water for everybody to grab two of them if you want to. And a little sticker that's on here is from Romans 15, 13. And it says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Individuals approached me after the first service and said, I'm going to go out and buy a case of water and put my own stickers with that verse on it. That's such a cool idea. You can take bottles of water with you today. They're at all the exit doors. Grab two of them. Hand this out the next time you have an encounter with someone. Maybe ask their name and maybe say, can I pray for you? It's got a New Hope sticker on it and the verse that I just quoted to you. Consider doing that as you take on this week. I'm going to pray for you that we would be the church as we represent the Christ, Christ in the kingdom out in this world. Would you join me in that? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for opening up your word this morning in such a way that it's applicable to our life and that we can use really practical steps to represent you in this world. You said even a cup of cold water given in your name it receives favor and blessing from you, that you regard that highly. So, Father, we want to be really practical this week as we take it on, that we would represent you well, and that every time that we see an individual who's struggling, that you would remind us that that was us, that we've been redeemed by you. You are the helper of the helpless. Father, we go out now in confidence, asking for your blessing on us even further to give us confidence to represent your kingdom well. We ask for that confidence in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.